This is Straight Ahead with the 606 Club of London and David Lewis. It's hard to learn how tears can burn one's heart, but that's the thing that I found out. Too late, I guess, cause I'm in a mess. My faith has gone, why lead me on this way? I thought there'd be no price on love, but I had to pay. If I could perform a miracle, I'd revive your thoughts of me. Yet I know that it's hopeless, you can never really care. That's why I despair. I'll go along hoping someday you'll learn the flame in my heart, dear. Welcome to the 606 Club Straight Ahead Show with me, David Lewis. So we dipped our toes straight into the big bands this week, going back to 2013 and the Chicago Jazz Orchestra. And on that particular track, it featured the vocals of Cyril Amy and their version of the Yardbird Suite. 
We will, of course, be continuing our series of interviews keeping musicians live this week. And our guest on the show a little while in a little while's time is Rob Luft. And uh, you can hear the first part of that at around about 10.30. But talking of guests on the show, a few weeks ago, we had Quentin Collins on with us. And he's released that wonderful album, Road Boys. It's available on vinyl. If you go over to his uh, website, you can pick it up there. And also on Bandcamp. And a track that uh, we didn't get around to playing at the time is this one, The Hill.
album Road Warriors is all about the life of a musician on the road. And that was the hill that we just listened to there with, amongst others, features from Dan Nimmer on the keys and Willie Jones III on the drums. Before midnight, apart from hearing the first part of our interview with Rob Luft, uh, we'll also be hearing from the great Ella Fitzgerald, and also we're going to feature Buddy's bit, which is going to be one of his seminal, one of his signature numbers, and that's coming up in just a short while's time. But from the uh, British trumpet of Quentin Collins, over to the Michigan-born trumpeter Thad Jones, who is a, certainly part of a, a mu- very musical family, sandwiched in between the uh, older brother, pianist Hank Jones, and his younger brother, the drummer Elvin Jones. Here we go with Thad and Steaming. Thank you. 
Dreaming from Thad Jones, and you'll find that on his album called After Hours, released back in 1957 on the Prestige label. And the lineup on the album, the musicians had become known as the Prestige All Stars by that point in time. And the lineup included Paul Chambers on the bass, Arthur Taylor was on the drums, you heard Frank West on the flute, Kenny Burrell, of course, the unmistakable sounds of Kenny Burrell on guitar, uh, Mal Waldron was on the piano, and recorded by, by Van Gelder, and Thad Jones, of course, was on the trumpet. So every week on the show, we play something from Buddy Rich from uh, my late father's collection, in actual fact. I went to see the great man himself a few times uh, never realising that I'd get a chance to play him on the radio and there's two tracks that are recognised as being his signature numbers one of course is Channel One Suite but uh, this evening and this week on After Hours we are going to be playing the other one The West Side Story
West Side Story medley there, and the particular version we listened to was from 66 in the band's swinging new Big Bad album, and uh, in the medley we heard from Overture, Cool, Something's Coming, and Somewhere, and features apart from Buddy himself, of course, from Jay Corey on the tenor, and Jim Tremble was on the trombone. So it's about time that our attentions turn over to British guitarist Rob Luft. We sat down and had a chat a few weeks ago, around about this kind of time, he should actually be touring his new album, Life is the Dancer, but uh, obviously everything's been put on hold, but that gave us time to sit down and have a great catch-up and a chat with Rob, and that is coming up next and the uh, track we're going to hear at the start of the interview is the title track from the album life is the dancer 606 gift vouchers a unique present for those who love the good things in life
are once again at that part of the show that uh, we have got our guest for the evening with us and it is guitarist Rob Luft. Rob, a very good evening to you. Good evening, David. So I would say, how are you finding things? But that's probably a question that's kind of lopsided in its, uh, in its answer, isn't it? Yeah, I guess it's, uh, it's pretty, pretty mad couple of months that we've had, especially in the music business industry, whatever you want to call this part of the, you know, the, the art sector, I guess it's been a mad few, few months. Yeah. So, so should we sort of go back to front, start at the end first. So with the lockdown, um, I know you and I were having a little chat before we started recording the interview and you said that you were super busy and you had a lot of bookings in. Did you see it coming? Did you have a, a sixth sense that, yeah, I can, I know what's going to happen Were you and the other guys in the music world talking? To be honest, I felt it getting pretty bad from the first few days of March when I was playing at the Pizza Express mm-hmm. Jazz Club in Soho mm-hmm. uh, with an incredible Italian singer and a great Italian band, all of whom flew over from Milan. And this was the 3rd and 4th of March. So obviously that was pretty close to when Italy locked down on the mm-hmm. 10th of March. And it was it was a few weeks ahead of the UK, Italy. Mm-hmm. So they were already experiencing some pretty dramatic statistics over there. And they said, to be honest, Rob, we're amazed that we can even fly over here unchecked into London, do the gig in the Pizza Express and fly back unchecked. You know, mm. so they they were saying it was it was already pretty weird. And then it got weirder and weirder as March developed. So it all came to a quite a dramatic head on the 12th of March, when I was in New York City, I had my first two gigs in uh, Greenwich Village. Mm-hmm. Well, that's two, pretty cool. Yeah, it was really cool with a wonderful singer who I worked with, who we mentioned just before, Alina. Mm. And we'd sold out two nights in a theater just off Broadway. And we got into the sound check on the first night uh, on the 12th of March. And we were told in the middle of our sound check that both of our shows had been canceled due to the fact that Trump had announced a travel ban. And Broadway has shut down, Carnegie Hall had shut down, and this theatre, in line with the rest of New York's theatres, Manhattan's theatres, shut down as well about two hours before our first sold-out show. So, so it really was, came real to you and you were a long way from home? I was miles away from home. And at that point, New York was possibly starting to become the epicentre of the infection in the whole world. I don't know if you saw the news yeah, around I, that I did, time. I did. Yeah. New York was really the not the, the place to be. <laughs> yeah. So we were we got back on the plane as soon as we could. And you know, we were literally on the last flights out of Zygon, basically, you know? And um we you've managed to remain healthy through this, I take it. I haven't noticed any change to my personal health, but I am a I am a bit of a, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a fitness freak, but I do love to, I love marathon running. I love cycling. I, I'm not, I, I'm not a classic jazzer who loves to, you know, indulge in do various bad things. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Indulge in various substances, uh, which we won't go into in this conversation, <laughs> but I'm a, I would consider myself probably out of uh, harm's way in terms of... Well, yeah, I suppose uh, the fact you're fit, you're young, all of those, you've got a good respiratory system, so that it was less likely to affect you. So thankfully, even though you were in the epicentre at the wrong time. <laughs> I was in all the wrong places at the wrong time. <laughs> and mixing with Italians too. So. <laughs> exactly. With the, I was there every possible moment. And as jazzers, we spend our whole... Touring musicians, we spend our whole time in airports. So yeah. I was on... I was in... All sorts of places, which probably places, yeah. 
yeah, at various points in the in in the first few months of this year before I realised, like you say, how real it was getting. Mm. So yeah. So let's um, go back to the beginning now. Now we've gone back to front. If we go back to the beginning, jazz was it in your family? It was in my household right. because yeah. my stepfather is a wonderful kind of semi-professional slash amateur rock guitar player who plays in the kind of pub scene mm -hmm. in South London where I grew up. And, You're um, a sit cup boy, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, so he was playing in pubs around Abbey Wood, Woolwich, you know, Charlton when I was young. And he just brought great jazz records on vinyl into my mum's house when they moved in together. Mm -hmm. And I was just blessed, totally blessed, right place at the right time, unlike uh, being in New York in the middle of a pandemic, you know, <laughs> some things did go well for you. So uh, exactly. was, it all, was it guitar or piano that came first for you? Well, it was guitar and the, 20 years later, the piano still hasn't arrived yet. Because <laughs> oftentimes, of course, I find when talking to musicians, the natural birthplace for many a career is the piano before they find the instruments, that, you know, they're about to make their living from. But for you, it was guitar. Actually, the first instrument I played was the violin, classical violin. Mm -hmm. And I did that when I was very young at primary school. I was just put into a music class and was given, you know, the choice or was given maybe not even a choice, but just given the violin. And I played it actually as my primary instrument until I was about 16 years old. Wow. Um, so, and I only stopped playing it a couple of years ago. I mean, I still got one in the house, but I don't. Don't pick get, it up. Yeah, it's, the, it's, get, it's gathering dust at this point. But So when did you pick up the guitar and start playing that in earnest? When did that become your primary instrument? Probably when I was about, it became my real prime instrument when I was kind of 10 or 11. But um, well, I guess it was always in the house with my stepfather. Mm. You know, when he, he moved in when I was four or five. So mm. at that point, there would have already been an, an electric guitar in the house. And I would have obviously thought it was much cooler than a classical violin absolutely violin, yeah. you know, and did music always make sense to you I, I, again i've spoken to many people where it's kind of like literally just looking at music playing it and reading it makes sense to a lot of people at a very young age I mean, did you find that was the case you just resonated to it well i connected actually with the rock bands of when i was growing up so it was actually bands like i was probably the last per, one of the, the last generation before um I guess just before 2000 when the guitar bands stopped being cool. So I was just that era of Nirvana, Radiohead, um, you know, kind of six slightly less cool bands like mm. Green Green Day and Some 41 who were still kind I of- I will agree you're mentioning names I don't know now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> they're kind of really kind of slightly lame indie rock bands from the right. late 90s. And I guess the guitar was very, grunge rock was still very cool. And that kind of, uh, that was very much the, the music that, you know, young, young people liked when I was growing up mm. on, on music TV channels like MTV and Kerrang. And I was just, I was always drawn to that being, uh, very, you know, it was very cool. So mm -hmm. it, 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 that's what resonated with me originally much more than, reading music off of the off the written page or anything like that that came much much later yeah and i know you ended up as a ram boy you went through the royal academy uh, one of the great conservatoires in london and had it uh, kind of been obvious from i don't know 14 15 16 that that would have been the degree that you would have ended up doing yeah i mean it was another another crazy story with new york actually i was going to 
enroll at the Manhattan School of Music in uh, on the uh, in in New York, obviously. But I I just ended up doing an audition at the Academy and an audition at Manhattan and. Uh, the first time I, that was the first time I went to New York and I was 18 and I was so overwhelmed with it, you know, having mm. grown up in the kind of sleepy Southeast London, I was not ready for the, the, the chaos Speed and the and size. The, yeah, exactly. The frenetic pace of life that, that I found in Manhattan when I went to do my audition, I was there for a couple of weeks and it was just way too much for me. And I actually didn't, I really didn't play a very good audition at all. And Did, ended you up, got accepted. I was accepted, but I was, unfortunately, I was not offered any form of bursary or financial assistance. And in America, the degrees are just so overpriced, in my opinion, that it just made sense to stay in the UK, stay in London. And actually, it was a blessing in disguise. And I haven't looked back since. And we what, three years at the Royal Academy? It was a four-year course for the jazz course. And I always like to say, when I mentioned that, that the, uh, the jazz course at the Royal Academy of Music is four years, but the neuroscience degree at Cambridge University is only three years. So <laughs> you do the maths. That's probably a year just trying to understand bitches brew for Mars, is it, or something? <laughs> exactly. You do the maths. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, jazz is an incredibly, incredibly complicated music form. That's the strangest anomaly. It always looks so cool and easy and free-spirited when you go to watch it, and yet the work that you guys put into developing your skill to that level is ridiculous. So yeah, it's, I can it's, I can totally understand. So the four three to four years, what kind of format did that degree course take? Was it performance or? It was yeah, it was very performance oriented. There were a few essays on the history of the music and also uh, quite a bit of kind of transcribing, which is the kind of process of taking recorded something pieces, hear. something that you hear, and notating it on manuscript paper, and that that was. That formed quite a large basis of the course, but I would say it was about 90% performance orientated, yeah. And did you find that you started to get gigs in town fairly quickly, either after you left Ram or in your last year or so while still at uni? As I'm kind of a sort of kind of as I've grown up more or less in London, I was already working in London from when I was about 15 or 16. So right, yeah. it, it just kind of gathered steam as I was on the course. And I, I hate to admit it, but I could have been more attentive in my last 18 months at the course. I was so busy doing other busy concerts and, and tour, touring and gigging and doing shows and what have you that mm. actually I slightly regret not taking the last year or so of the course as seriously as I could have done. But yeah, some could argue it hasn't done you too badly. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's not. It's um, it's not all bad. Apart yeah. from being in New York at the wrong time, I think things are going okay for you generally. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and of course, I'm... you apart from Ram, you're also a, a Nigel player as well, aren't you? One of the great yeah. institutions of the jazz world here in the UK. How yeah, far, that was... how long ago is that going back now? That I d that was really the, my formative training, actually, more than the academy. I would say that I spent probably about six years on and off from when I was about. 12 to 18 really taking it seriously at Nigel and then again I sort of tailed off slowly from when I was 18 to the age of 20 21 and I definitely I was definitely out of there by the time I was 21 in in 2015 I would have been just about leaving So is that the Mark era or the Bill era or is it a crossover It was exactly on the crossover point so I got to know Bill really well. And I, I, I also worked a lot with Mark and have tried to keep in touch with them both 
when and I you, can. You were very heavily involved with their one of their latest albums, weren't you? The Change that was. Yeah, that was 2012, and I was also on their 50th anniversary album, which was just called 50, which came out on Whirlwind Recordings in 2015, I think. Yeah. And when I was doing some research on you, I mean, it's not everyone you can check their website, and it's just a cool stage shot of you with Marcus Miller, from what I could see. That's <laughs> yeah, that's another. That's I was, I was going that's through. Another... That's Marcus Miller, surely. So, how did all that yeah. come about then? So that came about in 2017, uh, and it all started. That that shot was taken. That photo was taken in March 2017 in Lausanne. Mm-hmm. But the the reason that that happened was because I was one of the prize winners in the 2016 Montreux Jazz Festival's guitar competition. It was actually the last guitar competition they ever held before it became something else. And it, I came, set, I kind of got the second the second place award, and it was an amazing experience. I was out there in Montreux. It was I just entered on a whim, you know. I just saw it and thought, right, last year at college, I was my last year at college as well at the academy, and I thought I've prepared all this new. Um, work to present in my final recital. I'll also submit it for the Montreux Jazz Festival's guitar competition. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up being offered a place in the semi-final, flew out to Geneva, I think it was, and went over to Montreux, did the semi-final, which was also adjudicated by John McLaughlin, who's one of my absolute guitar heroes, and then was in the final and was awarded the second place. And yeah, that was wonderful. And then part of the prize was to do a week of workshops and performances in Lausanne the following year with Marcus Miller, Trilok Gertu, who is an incredible Indian tabla player, uh, loads of great stars. And that was actually where I met uh, Elina Duni, the singer that we Mm, that I was in New York with. Yeah, because you've got a very broad base of music styles that you play and like to listen to. And, and as we've already talked about, obviously helped form you as a musician too. And that seems to have carried through into your career to date, doesn't it? The kind of work, records you work on and the, the uh, areas that you're producing with. You're not Absolutely. sticking just to jazz. And I think that's important for the future of jazz, isn't it? Because it's going to be guys like yourself that are carrying this great music and where it is now to go into the future. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that at this point, Jazz is such is so different from where it was like a hundred years ago when it was at its inception. I mean, and actually, in in a weird way, I know it's um it's a kind of thing. It's something I've been thinking about a lot over the past twelve months because last year was obviously twenty nineteen, which was the sixtieth anniversary of the great year of jazz, which was 1959. Mm-hmm. So in 1959, you had Kind of Blue by the Miles Davis Sextet. You had Giant Steps by the John Coltrane Quartet. You had uh, Charles Mingus Art, um, which is a legendary Charles Mingus album. You had the Take Five album that Dave Brubeck All of those released. are 59. They're all 59. And you also had a bunch of others like Shape of Jazz to Come by Ornette Coleman. And a lot of people say that jazz reached its actual peak pure mm. pure and it's peak and also it's con- conclusion in the purest sense of it being an african-american art form in 1959 and ever since then people in order to innovate have been fusing it with other styles of music so mm. we mentioned bitches brew which fuses it with kind of the hendrix era of rock of blues rock and that's how you get your first wave of jazz fusion of of combining the the sounds of Miles Davis's uh yeah exactly the influences of Hendrix and Mm. and the blues with Miles Davis's pre-existing jazz heritage and his jazz lineage so I guess from 
from 59 onwards, you start to find these crazy fusions of jazz. And I'm very much interested in that, you know, working with people who do that.
that was the first part of our interview with Rob Luft, a guitarist. And I often like to give you the chance to look at their artist website as we're interviewing them. It's Rob Luft, and that's L-U-F-T, .co.uk. And you can find his discography there and link you over to Bandcamp as well. So you can buy the albums there. And on the album that we just listened to, the personnel, obviously Rob is on guitar. Joe Wright is on tenor sax. You've got Joe Webb on the piano and the hammered organ. Tom McCready is on bass guitar. And Corey Dick is on the drums. On that first track we just listened to, which, of course, was the title track, Life is a Dance, that featured Byron Wallen. And the track we just heard at the end there was Berlin. And we're going to be hearing the next part of that interview before 11.30 here on Straight Ahead. Brought to you along with the 606 Club as ever. So we're coming up to the halfway point of the show. I promise you some Ella. Let's get into that next. Listen online, on DAB and on smart speakers. Straight Ahead with London's leading music venue, the 606 Club. smart he's too close for comfort behave my heart he's too close for comfort be wise be smart behave my heart don't upset your card when he's so close be soft be sweet but be discreet don't go Sure. 
the incomparable Ella Fitzgerald there, live from Montreux in 1977 alongside her favourite trio, the Tommy Flanagan Trio. And last weekend, actually, on BBC Two, there was a great documentary. I'm about halfway through watching it, and I'm sure it's on the catch-up service, but uh, what I've watched of it so far, it's a fascinating insight into the lady's life. That was Ella Fitzgerald, too close for comfort. So, back we go to our interview with Rob Luft, and uh, we're going to start with the second part of the interview with another track from the featured album this evening, which Life is the Dancer, and it's called Synesthesia. Thank you. 
I think looking back also through the jazz funk era, the pure jazz funk era, looking at the way some of the straight head guys changed and moved with it, such as Donald Byrd and Freddie Hubbard, you know, there's some great names that realised that you couldn't stay stuck in the mud with jazz from the 50s and 60s. There was another way of moving this forward and it, it paid off and it, it sounded fantastic and their purity was still there. As a player, they were still there. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds great. You know, I mean, I love those Donald, those 70s Donald Byrd albums. I love and Grand Herbie, Green. Of Herbie, of course, and John McLaughlin. You can go, you can name almost any post-59 jazz artist and you can see how, and you can name, like you say, a lot of pre-59 mm. jazz artists who were there in 59 and they saw that there was, this was a pivotal moment, actually, that jazz in its purest American form was actually reaching perhaps a conclusion. Mm. And at this point, it was time to draw in influences from yeah, other it's worlds. That's an interesting and- point you make. I've never heard it put that clearly, but it's very interesting the way you put that. And mm. and again, think of somebody we've got on the show in a few weeks' time of your trade is Jim Mullen. And again, there was another legend that saw how different he could make his sounds with the Morrissey Mullen sound, of course, he had, but still making pure and great jazz and, and still is. I mean, he's just released a new album of the last few weeks called Legacy. So, you know, it just goes to show it, it's still there. The, the vibrancy is, and the excitement is still there. Yeah, and you can always come back to jazz in its purer mainstream form you know that format that you're talking about with jim who is an incredible straight ahead jazz player Mm. and i like to consider myself a student of the that that earlier era of bebop and hard bop and Mm. blue note era classic Mm. jazz i'm still very much a student of that music and i always will be and i think we all respect that and uh, bow down to the masters of that whilst also spending some time trying to form other connections with other musics and other genres in order to take it somewhere perhaps it hasn't already been. Now, of course, there's two albums that I particularly wanted to talk to you about. One from last year with a, a guest we've been lucky enough to have on the show, Dave O'Higgins. You and Dave released an album, Plays Train, last year, didn't you? Which I think was down at the Six. I'm sure you played some gigs down at the Six with it last year, didn't you? We did. We did our first... In fact, we did our first ever gig with that project at the Six and we did our... One of our last ever gigs at the six, we were down to be there next month and we had about 15 to 20 dates in the diary for this year. We did a mammoth 42 date tour I last saw year. This big but, tour, yeah. Yeah. So uh, how did that, the inception of that was you approach Dave or Dave approach you? Well, I think it was a gradual process. I knew Dave way back from my Nigel days because he was occasionally a guest director of the band you know if mark armstrong wasn't around often dave o'higgins would be called in to direct the band Mm -hmm. or to kind of artistically lead it for a rehearsal or two and he was also of course an alumnus of the band himself of course yeah in the 80s he was in in the band so i knew of him and i was aware of him being a kind of you know one of the the legends the real the real uh, veterans of the uk jazz scene and has Mm. just he's um he's he's omnipresent you know he's he's admired by audiences around the country and rightly so because he, he plays so beautifully it's a, and yeah it's a lovely sound a lovely tone he's got a great tone and he's a really great guy and really he's he's a really warm musician and is another person who is open to many different styles of music and he's just I, I, you know it's 2020 vision with him and why did you guys pick on train as the focus we chose we actually chose train and Thelonious monk it was Monk and Train together. And the reason was because they recorded a great album together in 1957, which was rather uninventively called uh, Thelonious Monk with John Coltrane. And, <laughs> Lots of um, time in there and I with that one then. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And um, 
they made an album together and it's an incredible album. And we found that we both really loved Monk's kind of compositional style. It's just so quirky. It's mm. so idiosyncratic and it's, it's timeless. You know, it has something that could have been in the, written in the 30s. It could have been written yesterday. It's got something very fresh and very, it's just very hard to put a date on it. And we were very much interested in, in not just kind of jumping on the, the you know, the, on the, the hamster and the wheel of jazz, you know, kind of repeating uh, existing cliches or, you know, kind of perpetuating cliches about jazz. We did want to have that trying to take it somewhere different. And mm -hmm. I think taking Monk, uh, taking Monk's music and taking it into a context where there is no piano, because of course he was a pianist. pianist of course, yeah. And um, I think it just took it somewhere so fresh to play the music of Monk, which is so pianistic and to have no piano in the group because we had a Hammond organ and a guitar. Yeah. And I think that's why I asked the question, particularly focusing on Monk, because, you know, as you said, being a pianist, it was like, okay, it's missing the one obvious element that you would have thought would yeah, have been exactly. there. Exactly. And obviously with it not being there, we can't imitate Monk and Monk's oh, I sound. See. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it gets away from any possible lapses into just doing a cover almost of and a sound of Thelonious kind of thing. Exactly. It stops, stops it being a pastiche and mm. stops it having, like I say, that repetitive cliched element to the music. And the reason that we chose Coltrane to complement with that is because his music is totally different to Monk's in the sense that it has. It, it, it's Monk wrote 72 compositions and he wrote them in just a three or four year period between 1944 and 1948. And then for the rest of his life, he toured those same 70 compositions. Whereas mm -hmm. Coltrane, he had a very short career, much shorter than Monk's, but he wrote music that spans quite a lot of genres. So after he released that seminal Giant Steps album in 59, he went on into the 60s to release My Favourite Things. He went on into the mid-60s releasing A Love Supreme and Interstellar Space, which are totally spectral, mad, kind of uh, modal, exploratory, quite soul-searching albums, which contrasts with the more scholarly approach of his earlier work. So mm. his it gave us a lot of scope, you know, having Coltrane on the one hand and having Monk on the other hand, there, it was a really fascinating, almost like I say, almost like a student exercise for me to, to be there studying that music. And of course, you, as you say, you toured that very extensively through the course of 2019. Yeah. And I mean, uh, that was a big tour, I know. I, I kept seeing the dates coming up. And then, of course, coming into this year, what I assume you thought was going to be the big news of the year was Life is a Dancer. Yeah, the, exactly. The that was going to be the, yeah, the brand new uh, band leader album as a solo artist rather than as kind of co, uh, you know, kind of as a co-leader with Dave last year, this was my next, uh, endeavor as a solo band leader. And unfortunately the tour has been, let's say postponed, mm -hmm. um, until maybe next year, but we're not, it's all up in the air. At the it moment. is. I know no one seems to know exactly when the phone's going to start ringing yet. So talking about this, uh, lovely 10 track album that we'll be playing some tracks off the show this week. And we have been in previous weeks as well. You were kind enough to give me a copy to play on the air. Tell us about the concept of the album then. How did it come about? What were your thoughts as you were heading into beginning to prepare this project? Well, it's a continuation of my first, my debut album, which I released in 2017, which is called Riser. And it was a quintet album that was, mm -hmm. and it was on edition records and it came off the back of winning a prize at the Royal Academy where I graduated in 2016. And I got involved in, in this, this 
wonderful label based in Oxfordshire called Edition Records. Mm -hmm. And I was really, um, it was, that was just a a real revelatory moment to be working with, with them and to be working with Dave Stapleton, who is a really visionary, um, kind of artistic director of that label. And he, he just, he was able to give me so much guidance and he, he gave me the confidence to, to release the debut album and it went down really well riser and we toured Critically it very well as well didn't it, it got very good it reviews. was it got great reviews across across europe across the states across uk and i was delighted with it and um we did a big tour the following year in 2018 a big uk tour and we we were touring also last year we had i think 10 or 15 gigs last year and this year we were down to play about 20 25 shows to promote the new album mm-hmm. and which was released know, back the, in april wasn't it it was released about a month ago, almost to the day. What's the date? Uh, yeah, it was yeah, the 18th. about a month ago. Yep. Yeah, about a month ago. And, you know, it was um, these days when you release an album, it's very much a vehicle to tour with. Mm, of course. You know, so if you don't have an album, you don't, you don't do a tour. If mm. you do have an album, you can get a nice kind of juicy uh, 10, 20 date tour together. And, and um, hopefully sell some albums. And Exactly. They, they kind of feed into each other. And, yeah. Uh, I was really looking forward to touring all this new music that I wrote about a year ago. Uh, we're so originals, it. aren't they? They are apart from one, yeah. And um, we re- we recorded it about last June, so yeah, almost twelve months ago. And it was it was um, mixed last October, and it was all lined up to to be the the twenty twenty, the year of um, world domination, you know. But unfortunately, it's uh, events slightly, have taken over. Exactly. The, the, um, the gods have spoken. So and, do you get um, involved with the post-production side of an album like this? Do you get involved at all with the, the mixing or the recording session on the day itself? Or Yeah, I get involved with the, the mixing and the mastering. I tend to leave, I have a, a mixing engineer and a mastering engineer who I really trust. So I don't get too stuck into it, but I'm always, I always try to attend at least kind of three quarters of the mixing sessions. I have learned that mastering is kind of like the God of all arts that uh, to get a good mastering engineer is the real cherry on the cake, isn't it? Because they are, their ears are so trained to put out the finest detail in the music. Yeah. I mean, actually the first album, I took it to a, to a separate engineer than the mixing engineer, but this latest one, not for any reason in particular, but Maybe I ran out of money. I'm not sure what happened, but I um I got my mixing engineer to master it as well, and he did a beautiful job. So actually, it's all worked out really well in the end. Because that's the other thing that people may not realise if they're not involved in the business at all is it's not an inexpensive business putting together a CD, recording, getting the guys in for a couple of days session work, actually no, getting the physical CDs made, and you're on vinyl as well, aren't you? It, I am on vinyl, and I'm I'm very lucky to have that infrastructure of a of a small record label behind me who do support me mm. uh, financially and uh, morally in this process. And I've also got a couple of other little hookups with uh, BBC Radio Three and a couple of other funding bodies that have helped out with the Sirius, who are a wonderful uh, production agency in London, who have helped with the the release of this album, both financially and morally, and in terms of the infrastructure of getting it out. But it is an expensive endeavour. It's a labour of love putting Mm. an album out, you know. Mm. And so if we are jumping forward, who knows quite when, is the idea if the rules and the clubs begin to ease back into action next year that you will now tour this album next year? That's the plan. I mean, we've got a lot of dates are starting. I mean, at the moment, a lot of the dates are basically postponed until further notice. Mm -hmm. 
and they haven't been rearranged yet. I don't think that um, I don't think that promoters uh, of jazz venues are particularly keen to put any dates in the diary at the moment. Mm. Not to my awareness, anyway. I mean, I, you know, I could be totally wrong there, but I'm not. I'm not no, getting a. I'm no. not getting a lot of information as to when my concerts will be rebooked yet. It's too no, early. What, for you're, that. what you're saying is exactly what I'm hearing from all the other guests we've had. That you know, it is just too soon yet, and they're assuming that this will continue for a good little while. So, we're just trying um, to continue to support you. You know, because yeah, the idea is to give you a platform while you haven't got any gigs. You know, it's nice to be able to give you a vehicle just to talk about what you're up to. Yeah, no, and I'm I'm trying to use the term as creatively as I can. And I'm yeah, so what trying... are you doing then? How are you filling your days? I'm actually, it's been a pretty interesting time in the sense that I've been doing a lot of these live stream concerts because my my partner also lives here. Actually, Elena is my partner, and she we live here together in London, in um, in southeast London near nearby London Bridge, and mm-hmm. we have been doing a bunch of live streams in duo. And I've just been learning so much about the process of recording our two instruments in the house, mm-hmm. what mics to use, where, how to get it into the computer. And Thus, with the you've right got a good interface. mic on our interview tonight. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, actually, this is one of Alina's mics. Um, but um, I have been really trying to occupy my thoughts with the recording process and the uh, visuals, the audio visuals with the uh, the casting of you know audio and video where how to cast it out to YouTube how to cast it to Facebook how to cast it to Instagram how to do it to all three of them at the same time it's been an absolutely um, it's been a very steep learning curve oh don't once you get into audio it's my it's my little pet love I spend hours editing these interviews make EQing them make them and it's all that hidden work but hopefully it just makes it that much easier for people to listen to and the same with what you're doing on the Facebook uh, with the Facebook lives and the other social platforms and it's a lovely way I, I was actually watching something last night with Jacob Collier and uh, you know it's, it's just great you can walk into these people's living rooms just for like half an hour a day and just watch some live music still yeah, I mean, we did one last night for a theatre up in Newcastle who mm-hmm. got in touch after hearing us performing on Jazz FM in, in mid-April. Mm-hmm. And they just said, would you be up for for doing a, a live stream for us kind of in lieu of our regular concert mm-hmm. series, which we would have at our, our theatre? Would you be up for doing it from your home? And we did one last night and it was really fun. And although it's obviously, it's not quite as euphoric as the being in a dimly lit, you know, sweaty jazz club. Mm. It's not quite as as celebratory as that. It still has something interesting and someone still performance. Wrote, yeah, and we got it was interesting because someone reviewed the concert and put it put up a little review on a blog today and um they said something very interesting which I didn't think about, which was that as I was introducing one of the songs last night, I said, Oh, this is a song that I composed on this sofa and now we're going to perform it for you from this sofa and in the review the 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 writer this morning wrote that it was very intimate and mm. fascinating for us to be able to witness a performance directly from the place where a lot of this music was came conceived. to life yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. it's almost even more intimate than a gig and as you're treading into the world of performing on social media i can tell you you'll find out it's a uh, strength and weakness is you get immediate feedback <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah, you get the, the moment you make a mistake, feedback. you know about it straight away. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. Unfortunately, when I said that it's a steep learning curve, I was not. I was not lying. It, the, <laughs> the learning curve is so steep because you get that immediate feedback, and 
you get one thing wrong with the sound and everything is a write-off and you can ruin the whole stream you can ruin the whole performance just by having one level a bit wrong or not having something plugged in in the right place yeah 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 yeah, you I know, totally understand it. Believe me, I feel your pain. So yeah. you've got a lovely website, which I'd encourage people to go and look at, which is robluft, with a T at the end, .co.uk. Uh, there, obviously, mm. there were gigs and tour dates on there, not so much anymore, but all of the album projects you've been involved with are on there, which was really interesting. I was having a look at that before we chatted. So do check out his website, robluft.co.uk. And Life as a Dancer is available on all platforms, I take it. It is, yeah. It's available on the the usual streaming sites, which don't uh, afford very much remuneration. And it's also available on Bandcamp, where you can get a CD, a vinyl, or a digital copy for normal kind of retail prices. And that really... And I think they're waiving all of their rates at the moment, aren't they? All the money's going to the musicians, I believe. I think they're doing it once a week on a Friday or something like that. So So buy it on a Friday. (laughs) Buy it on a Friday, exactly. (laughs) Line it up for the weekend. Rob, it's been fascinating talking to you. And what comes through most of all is your vision and energy to want to carry jazz into the 20s and well into the 20s with a different style, with your print on it. You've got so much verve for what you're doing. You've obviously clearly got an energy for it. So I think jazz and its future, as long as we've got guys like you around, is in very, very safe hands. Let's hope so. As long as we can get back into uh, the dimly lit jazz clubs. We all need that. Just avoid New York. Read about New York before you go next time. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Rob, many thanks for your time. It's been great talking to you. Nice one. Cheers. Cheers, Rob.
finishing our interview with Rob there with another track from our featured album uh, on this morning's show, Snow Country. And of course, the album that we have been featuring is Rob's latest project, Life is the Dance. And if you go over to his website, robluft.co.uk, you'll find his discography there, which will link you over to Bandcamp. And you can buy all of the albums there. And the track we just listened to uh, very much featured the tenor sax of Joe Wright. So we've got some lovely music to come in the last half hour of the show this morning. I hope you can stay with me and uh, going to go contemporary. Actually, we've got some music coming from Go Go Penguin and from Kurt Elling as well. But next up on the show is something that you're going to recognise from Paul Desmond. Straight ahead with David Lewis. Thank you. 
1974 album by Paul Desmond, uh, more commonly known as Theme for Mash, but its actual title is Suicide is Painless. And once again, we heard from Connie Kay on the drums, um, and Ron Carter was on the bass. Now, I mentioned we were going to be listening to something from Go Go Penguin. They are a Manchester trio comprising of Chris Inworth on the piano, Nick Black was on the bass, and Rob Turner on the drums. They've been signed to Blue Note. They've got a great album out at the moment called Once in a... Uh, sorry, this was from an EP, actually, Ocean in a Drop. It was a soundtrack, I believe, for a short movie, and this is Four Corner.
Chester Trio, Go Go Penguin there with Four Corners. And their current set is simply called Go Go Penguin, well worth checking out. So we are going over to American singer now, Kurt Elling, and a track from the album called The Gate, Stepping Out. Electricity so fine, look and dry your eyes. We so tired of all the darkness in our lives. With no more. Jump into the car and drive to the other side Stepping out into the night Into the light Roving Stepping Into the light, into the light, through in 
Stepping out, and uh, we're going to stay with the great American vocalist right now. And Gregory Porter, a man who, of course, was supposed to be touring this year, and like every other musician, that's been put on hold temporarily. But he has still got an album coming out. It's called All Rise, and it's on pre order right now, certainly over on Apple Music. And uh, you can go and get your order there. And I think it comes out on uh, the 28th of August. But going back to one of his earlier albums, the Big Good album, which is a fantastic album, one of my favourites. And from that, we're going to be listening to Real Good Hands. <laughs> Well, maybe you know why I'm here. Your daughter and I have been dating for some time now, and, and you've always been real, real nice to me. And I look at your family pictures and I realize that I want the same thing too. I almost feel like I could call you mama and daddy. Really, that's what I'm here to talk about. Mama, don't you worry about your daughter Cause you're leaving her in real good hands I'm a real good man Now the picture of this man Is slowly coming into view Papa, don't you fret and don't forget That one day you was in my shoes Somehow you paid your dues Now you're the picture of the man That I someday want to be I know it's hard Watching the changes in our lives But I want to make Your daughter my wife Mama, don't you worry about your daughter cause you're leaving her in real good hands I'm a real good man now the picture of this love is slowly coming in view Papa don't you fret and don't forget that one day you was in my shoes somehow you paid your Now you're the picture of the man that I someday want to be Thank you. 
I know it's hard Watching the changes in our lives But I want to make Want to make your daughter my wife Oh, mama, don't you worry about your daughter Cause you're leaving her in real good hands I'm a real good man Now the picture of this love is surely coming in Don't forget that one day you was in my shoes Somehow you paid your dues Now you're the picture of the man that I someday wanna be And the picture of this man is surely coming into view And the picture of my wife is slowly coming into view And the picture of this love is surely coming into view Yeah, the picture of this love is surely coming into view And I'm so not sure that's exactly what I want Romantic in me has always loved the lyrics of that song. It's simply a story about a man asking his girlfriend's uh, father for her hand. It's a lovely, lovely story, really is. And you'll find it on Gregory Porter's album going back a few years now, I think to uh, 2012, called Be Good and Real Good Hands. Now, I don't often play a lot of Grover Washington on Straight Ahead, but uh, on his Soulbox album, there is a track that has always, always meant the world to me. It's gorgeous, very, very short, and it's simply called Aubrey.
too short but otherwise perfect to track your finds as I mentioned on the Soulbox album with Idris, Idris Muhammad on the drums and Ron Cart on the bass and clearly recorded with a full orchestra as well beautiful absolutely beautiful and it was Jay Berliner that was actually on guitar on that track so towards the end of the show we come now and uh, don't forget check out our website 606club.co.uk and all details of when we're going to be opening will be there in due course and of course we're streaming from the club as well now so if you go go over to the website you can read about that and we will be continuing our series of interviews next week and i'm hoping fingers crossed that we are going to have the one and only jim mullen so staying with jazz guitarist next week it's not quite ready yet not in the can so if things change do forgive me but hopefully jim mullen will be on the show with us next week i hope you enjoy the rest of your week and can join me next week for more jazz here with the 606 stuff and uh, obviously uh, many artists at the moment are having to record remotely because of the lockdown and this is an exact example of that uh, it's a version of the very thought of you recorded by Alicia Lewis along with uh, on the tenor along with Sam McDonald on guitar it's a beautiful version and I thought we'd play it out on this week's show so I'll be back with you at the same time midnight next Wednesday for more straight ahead enjoy the rest of your week <laughs> Thank you.